How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together this evening to be refreshed by the teaching of Your Word, to fellowship together uh, around the teaching of Your Word. Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things that we study, help us to gain a greater appreciation of different facets of the spiritual life and the things that uh, are part of uh, everyday behavior. Father, we pray that You would continue to uh, take care of the logistical needs of this congregation. We thank you for the way you've supplied our needs, and we're also thankful for the way you've supplied uh, recently the needs for Chafer uh, Theological Seminary. Now, Father, we just pray that you challenge us with the things we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement. We have a work day on, on Saturday, in case anybody had forgotten or didn't know. Uh, we need to get as many people out as, as we can to get a lot of the things done that we need to get done. Another thing that, a little announcement, just so you know what's going on, we've started with the DVDs on Sunday morning, second hour, and eventually we're going to be going to DVDs for every class so that we can produce those. And um, it's created a, a slight logistical problem, more for me than for you, and that is that the DVDs can't be more than an hour, which means I can't be long-winded. Yes. <laughs> I knew you had a standing ovation. So I get caught in traps every now and then because I want to finish something, and that's what happens Sunday morning, and I start talking faster and faster so I can finish it because there are certain things that you build to to the end of the message and I don't need to run out of time to get there so I've got to adjust to uh, that time frame that happened last Wednesday night as well I'm trying to get everything down to under to about 55 minutes so we have time there and last week we didn't I didn't quite finish everything I wanted to cover in Genesis chapter 9 so don't open your Bibles there. We're just going to use that as sort of a starting point. As I've said before, we're covering the different chapters in Genesis, but as we finish each section, there are different doctrines that are covered in each section or touched on. And almost every major doctrine in Scripture is covered in the first 11 chapters. Now, I'm going to wait until we finish chapter 11 before we go back and do sort of a global review 
of what's covered in the first 11 chapters because this is foundational to the rest of the Scripture and we have to understand these doctrines and how they provide the framework for Scripture. One of the least understood doctrines today is that the Bible provides the foundation for every arena of thought, every discipline of thought, whether it's uh, literature, whether it has to do with science, whether it has to do with ethics, whether it has to do with law, society, whatever, Every subject goes back to the Word of God. The Word of God provides parameters, and the starting point for anything and everything has to be what does the Word of God say about this subject. Anything from uh, social law, civil law, economics, investment. The Bible says a lot about, about money and gives these principles, and that's where you start. If you want to start with the principle of freedom, what is freedom? You don't start with some abstract principle of freedom. You start with the Scriptures and how the Scriptures define law and freedom, and that is where we get our understanding of these concepts. So as I've gone through each of these uh, chapters and sections, I've stopped and taken uh, brief studies at the end of each section and brief topics just to cover uh, those and the one that is most obvious in the last episode of of this Toledot section, which ends with Genesis 9:18 to 29, is of course uh, Noah's drunkenness, and that always brings up the doctrine of drinking. And we all know that there's a lot of Christians who just have problems with other Christians who partake of alcoholic beverages, and then there's other Christians who have problems with those that don't, and so we need to. Pers- perceive what the Scripture says about the subject of drinking and alcoholic beverage. So we'll just start off with understanding that the Bible talks about the legitimate use of wine. There's actually two terms that are used in the the Scripture, as we'll see, that we get into these passages. One is yayin for wine, and there's a couple of other different terms used. There's one for old wine, and there's one for new wine. But wine is wine. It is an alcoholic beverage. And the other is the Hebrew word shakar, which is the word for for barley beer. And that's the word that is usually translated as strong drink offering. And that's a misnomer for us because in our culture we think of strong drink as a distilled beverage such as scotch or rum or vodka, uh, something of that nature. But in the scriptures, they did, in the biblical times, they didn't know how to distill beverages. I don't think that... Technology was uh, uh, known until about the ninth or tenth century A.D. So a thousand years after the, uh, or about nine hundred years after the New Testament was completed, they uh, came up with a, the distilling process. So you can't have don't don't read that into strong drink offering. Uh, that was a beer offering. Okay, let's start off by looking at the legitimate uses of wine. We have to understand that wine is a part of creation. It's viewed as something that God has provided to man. I do not believe that Noah invented the process here in uh, Genesis 9, as some people suggest. I think it was there all along, but I think that he that the purpose of this is not to show that, as I stated last time, that Noah... Uh, somehow was surprised by the fact that his grape juice fermented, but that he just indulged too much and got drunk. And that points out the evils 
are the problems that come from the misuse of alcoholic beverage. And too often what you hear from preachers is an emphasis on the misuse instead of the legitimate uses of of wine. And the Bible clearly emphasizes that there is a legitimate use of wine. It is used in the Scripture to picture joy, that God gave wine for the joy of man's heart. I often joke that that's the 11th problem-solving device. You know, we go through our ten, but I remember one time talking to Colonel Thiem, and I said, you know, we talk about confession of sin, and you ask the question, how do you, how do you confess sin? Well, you admit your sin or acknowledge to God. That gives you practical application. How are you filled with the Spirit? Well, you confess sin, then you walk by the Spirit day by day. How, are you, how do you use the faith rest drill? Well, you claim a promise, and there are certain steps for how you claim a promise. And you can go through all of the problem-solving devices until you get to uh, uh, inner happiness, perfect happiness, sharing the happiness of God. And you ask the question, well, how do you do that? Well, it's simple. You go to the Psalms, and God gave wine for the joy of man's heart. That's how you do it. Come on, I'm being facetious. Let's. <laughs> so there's a mechanic for everything, right? Well, the Bible clearly says that wine is part of God's creation, but we are to handle wine like we handle anything else in God's creation according to the instructions that God gives. There are dangers to anything in life. Anything can be distorted. Anything can be warped out of, out of uh, perspective. Anything can become a focus uh, as a detail of life, can become a focus of uh, our search for happiness, that somehow we think that if we have success, if we have money, if we have the things that money can buy, if we have alcohol, if we have drugs, whatever it is, that will solve our problems, bring happiness, stability, dull the pain of of, uh, suffering in life. And so anything can be misused and abused. We have to recognize also that in the Old Testament, wine and alcoholic beverages were a central part of worship and celebration during certain feasts of Israel. Now, that's something that always blows the legalist's mind, is that in the Old Testament you had wine offerings and you had beer offerings to God, and that just somehow doesn't factor into their, their perspective. So let's go back and just trace through the Scripture some of the things that are, are stated. We have an example from Abraham and Melchizedek. After Abraham defeats the enemies of... Um, of Sodom, he comes in and goes back to Salem, brings the spoil to uh, Melchizedek, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And we're told now he was a priest of God Most High, and this is sort of a precursor and typologically of communion. But it, it really doesn't say anything about that. This is just a Meal of fellowship. That's what, in a sense, that's what communion means. It's fellowship, and it's fellowship with God, not fellowship with each other. But this is what's going on, and Melchizedek brought out wine, and the word for wine is the Hebrew word yayin, and this refers to an intoxicating beverage that was usually made from grapes. And this is the word we will find in most of these passages. Wine was also part of the perpetual daily sacrifice in the Mosaic Law. Every day there was a sacrifice in the morning and there was a sacrifice in the evening. Those were sin offerings. 
And these are described in Exodus 29, 39 to 41. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a libation with one lamb, and the other lamb you shall offer twilight, and shall offer it with the same grain offering as the morning, and the same libation for a soothing offering, an offering by fire to the Lord. So this was poured out on the fire. This wasn't, the priest didn't come and toast God and drink the wine. It was poured out on the fire as, long, as well as the, the uh, offering of the, of, the, uh, of the lamb and the flour, the meal, and, and, and bread. This was cooked and then it was burned on the fire as a burnt offering to the Lord. So we know from this that wine was also part of the grain offering in Leviticus 23.13. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its libation, a fourth of a heen of wine. Now, a heen, I think, was a couple of gallons. So once again, what we see is wine as part of the offering to the Lord. Wine was also included in other offerings. Numbers 15:7. it's a drink offering. You shall offer one-third of a heen of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And Numbers 15:10. Uh, you shall offer as a drink offering a half of a heen of wine as an offering by fire. Numbers 18.12, uh, all the best of the fresh oil and all the best of the fresh wine and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. The Hebrew word here for fresh wine indicates that which had just been, uh, just been prepared. It was new wine, and therefore it, did not have, uh, it had not been fermented long. Numbers 18.27, Your offering shall be reckoned to you as the grain from the threshing floor of the full produce from the wine vat. So again, you see, wine plays an integral role in the worship of God and in the sacrificial system under the Levitical offerings. So this led to a conclusion in Israel. Wine was specifically stated to be a sign of divine blessing for Israel. There were all types of physical, visible blessings for Israel in the Old Testament. And one of those was wine production. Another was just the gross national product, as we'll see with a couple of passages or further on. Every year there was an annual feast. And how much was spent on that feast was determined by, was a tenth of the gross national product. And uh, so one year, if the gross national product were high, then there would be a great celebration. You'd have a lot more money to spend on the party. And the next year, if there wasn't much production because God was not blessing the nation because they were in spiritual rebellion, then there wouldn't be a whole lot of money to spend on the party. So one year, they might have... Uh, excellent wine, and the next year all they can afford is Ripple. Well, that ought to tell you something. You know, if all you can get this year is Thunderbird and you can't get a good uh, French wine, then then uh, perhaps you are out of fellowship and God is cursing you. Gives you a whole new perspective on blessing and cursing, doesn't it? So wine was specifically stated to be a sign of divine blessing in Israel. Deuteronomy 
uh, 7.13 reads, He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock, and the land which he swore to your forefathers. This is all tied together. In the Old Testament economy, God's blessing was very physical so that people had a very concrete form of measurement as to how they were doing spiritually. So we don't have that in the New Testament because we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a different scenario. And this is a trap that your prosperity uh, preachers get into is because they can't understand the difference between the Mosaic Law, which had to do with Israel and their economy, and the church age. Also, uh, Deuteronomy 11:14 uh, says that in times when, when they're obedient, God will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. End of sentence. That other is slipped in there somehow. Deuteronomy 14:3. 23 talks about the annual celebration. Once a year, they had this annual feast in Jerusalem, and everyone was to spend a tithe or 10% on whatever food, wine, or beer they desired for that celebration. And that was a, that was a great sign of, and measurement barometer of their spirituality. There were actually three tithes in Israel. Every now and then you'll talk about some pastor, hear some pastor talk about bringing your tithes into the storehouse from, from uh, Micah or from Malachi 4. The storehouse was the temple treasury. Israel was a theocracy. As a theocracy, God was the, ruled as the executive branch and the priesthood, the Levites and the priests functioned as what we would say is comparable to the bureaucracy, and God, uh, God was the final authority in the land. He is the one who gave the Mosaic Law. As such, there were three tithes. There were actually income taxes designed to support the government. One tithe went to support the priests and the Levites. That supported the Bureaucracy. That's like our income tax going to pay the salaries of government officials and bureaucrats. Then you had another 10% that went to this annual party. And then you had another uh, 10% that was taken up every third year that went to su- supplying the needs for the widows and orphans. So that would be comparable to a, to a charitable system or what we call welfare. So all of that was, was part of the... Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy 14.23, we find the instructions for this. And you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. That would be Jerusalem, the central sanctuary. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, in order that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And you may spend... In verse 26, and you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, or that would be beer, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. 
So the word there for strong drinks, the Hebrew shakar, for barley beer. So this was the instructions for the annual feast. So you could just have one heck of a blowout if you, everybody was in, in fellowship and obeying the Lord and, the, and they had, were blessed with the excessive crops and production, then they could have a tremendous meal and they could go uh, eat the finest of meat, the finest of, uh, have the finest of beverages and have a tremendous meal. And then if they weren't, then you wouldn't have a lot of money to spend, and so it wouldn't be quite the same. So it's a very visible, physical, concrete way of being able to measure how the nation was doing spiritually. They never got the point. Furthermore, the uh, wine was also part of the annual feast called the Feast of Booths, as described in Deuteronomy 16, 13. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths. This would occur in December, according to our calendar. The Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants. Notice the emphasis on family and that the family would celebrate together uh, the uh, third divine institution. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants, and the Levi and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your town. So it would include everybody. Seven days, verse 15, seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place where the Lord chooses. That would be Jerusalem. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands, so that you shall be altogether joyful. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennial kingdom, and many times the use of wine is a picture of the joy that will be ours and will be everyone's during the millennial kingdom. This is seen in passages such as Psalm 104, 14, and 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. So wine here is seen as part of God's logistical grace for mankind. He Just as he causes uh, grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man. He provides food for us. He also provides wine for man's relaxation. So all of this is to show that the Bible emphasizes a legitimate use for alcoholic beverages. In fact, the loss of the grape crop, the loss of wine, was considered a sign of divine judgment on the nation. Deuteronomy 28 39, you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them. Now, Deuteronomy 28 is at the end of Deuteronomy, where you have two chapters in 28 and 29 that outline the blessings and cursings on Israel for obedience and disobedience to the law. And in this section of Deuteronomy 28, Moses is giving the list of... of um, uh, uh, cursings that the judgments that God will bring on the nation if they're disobedient. This fits into Leviticus 26 and the five cycles of discipline. 
And part of a sign of divine judgment is that they would plant and cultivate as hard as they worked, as much effort as they put into it. They would uh, cultivate their vineyards, but they would not be able to even harvest the grapes because the worms would destroy them. And so we see how God uses famine as part of judgment on the nation for their disobedience. Isaiah refers to this in Isaiah 5, 2. Remember, the prophets are men who are... They functioned as, as you might say, a prosecuting attorney representing the Lord. The prophet often always represented God. A priest represents man to God. A prophet represents God to man. And as a, the role of the prophet was to bring a lawsuit against man for disobedience to God. And this was called a reeve lawsuit in the Hebrew. That's R-I-V, actually. And this was their role. And often what you find in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel is that they are going back to the Mosaic Law and they are explaining to the people that the reason they're going through a certain amount of of discipline or or, uh, catastrophe or military defeat, economic downturn, is because they're violating the Mosaic Law. So in Isaiah 5.2, Isaiah says, And he dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He's talking about uh, God uh, working on the nation Israel. I mean, that's the imagery here that he's building this, this vineyard. And it says, he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So the analogy is that that with all the work God did to Israel, because of their disobedience, it produced worthless grapes, as it were, worthless production. But God uses the production of grapes and wine as an image, an illustration for uh, what he is doing with Israel. Now, one would not expect that if the use of alcoholic beverages is inherently wrong or evil, that God would be using that as, a, as an image for the spiritual production of Israel. So uh, the, the failure, and, and this ties right into, the imagery here ties right into Deuteronomy 28, the produ- where we have the production of wine, the positive production, good crops is a sign of God's blessing. The loss of the crops is a sign of God's discipline on the nation. Now, wine not only is used to represent spiritual production in the land or used as discipline on the land, but it also is a picture in Scripture of the fellowship that we will have with God in the Messianic kingdom. When the kingdom comes, there will be the use of wine. This is given in Isaiah 25, 6. And the Lord of hosts will provide a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. This mountain is the temple mount, the mountain of God in Israel during the millennial kingdom. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and that was a delicacy in the ancient world, uh, we might relate that to uh, caviar and a fine uh, pate, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Twice that's mentioned in this particular passage. The Hebrew word for aged wine here is shemer. That's uh, spelled S-H-E-M-E-R. 
This is a slightly different word. Before we had Yayin, and now we have Shamer. And this is an interesting word because it refers to the dregs or that which comes up out of the bottom of the wine. And so that would be the oldest wine in the cask. It was still there. And so by figure of speech, it came not to speak of the dregs of the wine, which for us is something negative, but it came to refer to that which is the oldest and the finest. So it's a word that has a literal meaning that doesn't quite communicate to us, but it was used figuratively to refer to the oldest and the finest of wine. So wine is clearly a part of the Messianic kingdom. Then we have a legitimate use in medicine, as wine was used in the Old Testament. Uh, Proverbs 31.6, Give strong drink, that is beer, to him who is perishing. What do you think about that? You're on your deathbed, you need a good beer. And wine to him whose life is bitter. Actually, the idea here isn't perishing, being on your deathbed. The idea is someone who is down, someone who is uh, feeling defeated in life, uh, someone whose life is a hardship, give them strong drink, give them wine, because not to get drunk, but just to lift their spirits a little bit. That was part of the legitimate use of wine. Medicinally, it's also referred to in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water exclusively. Paul says, Paul is instructing Timothy because he has problems with digestion. So Paul says, don't just drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, wine, we know in Greek culture, was rarely ever drinking, taken full strength. In fact, the Greeks thought that was a sign of a barbarian, was to drink wine full strength. They would usually mix it in a uh, about uh, one to two ratio of wine to water, or perhaps a uh, one to three ratio of wine to water, so that, that it wasn't as strong as the wine that we produce today. It did not have the same alcoholic content. It was uh, diluted, but nevertheless, it still an alcoholic beverage. Now, when the Lord came during the first advent, he frequently went to parties. He was hosted, invited to dinners, and he was ridiculed and criticized for going to those dinners by the Pharisees. Now, pay attention to what we see in... um, Where am I? In... Matthew 11:19 Okay, I don't have a slide of Matthew 11:19. Matthew 11:19 reads, "The Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds." So the accusation from the Pharisees, from the legalistic crowd, was that Jesus came eating and drinking. And then they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, obviously, he was going to these parties and he was eating. So they took that to the, exaggerated it and said he's, he's a glutton just because he went and he ate. 
Well, in order for them to call him a, a drunkard, he would have to be having a glass of wine as well at the party. So the Lord was not coming and abstaining. Now, this is also in contrast to John the Baptist in that passage who did not eat and drink. He had a restricted diet, and he abstained from alcohol. There's nothing wrong with making a decision in life to abstain from alcoholic beverage. In fact, I was sent a fascinating email this week that listed the uh, requirements and the stipulations for someone who serves as a guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. And I had read some of this before that they have, uh, has to do with their, their, their uniform and they, they take 21 steps before they turn, which is an allusion to a 21-gun salute. And they uh, always carry their, the rifle on the opposite side away from the tomb and a number of other details like that. But one thing I did not know was that if you are a guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier, you take a, an oath to never partake of alcoholic beverages for as long as you live and to never use profanity for as long as you live. And during the first, I think it's six or eight months that you're there, you don't talk to anybody. You spend all of your time memorizing all the information about uh, the history of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier who's buried at Arlington Seminary so that you become uh, imbued with all the knowledge there is about those who have given their lives in an honorable way for, for their nation and those who uh, serve their nation and are buried there in the uh, cemetery at Arlington. But I thought that was fascinating. And, and for the rest of their life, they're entitled to wear a, a medal or a lapel pin, I'm not, I can't remember which, which um, signifies that they were a guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. But if they partake of an alcoholic beverage or if they utter an obscenity or profanity, then they have to give it up because this is a lifelong oath. That sort of reminds me of the uh, vow, uh, Nazarene vow in the Old Testament, Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. So all of this is to show simply the point that the Bible recognizes in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that there is a legitimate use of alcoholic beverage. But the Bible also warns against the use of alcoholic beverage, that there is an illegitimate use, and that if this can be a problem for you, then abstinence is a good choice. And both the Old and New Testament, intemperance or drunkenness or the misuse of alcoholic beverage is condemned. But remember, the issue is balance and moderation in all things. The Scripture condemns excess in almost every area of life. And the same is true of the use of alcoholic beverages. In the Old Testament, Levitical priests were not to partake of alcoholic beverages. Leviticus 10.9 and uh, Ezekiel 44.21. The Nazarites, a special group of individuals who took a particular vow of separation unto God and number 6-3 and Judges 13, 4, 7, and 14, the Nazarites also were not to 
even drink grape juice. They were to refrain from grape juice and from all uh, wine. Then there was another group called the Rechavites. This is spelled R-E-C-H-A-B-I-T-E-S, the Rechavites. And they were descendants of their forefather, Jonadab, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 15 to 27. And he followed, uh, he was sort of a precursor to the Pharisees, you might say, but he had a strict guideline for life, and part of that was abstinence from alcohol. And all of his descendants abstained completely from the use of alcohol. In, they're mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 35, and in those verses, Jeremiah is not advocating or validating their traditions. What Jeremiah is doing in that chapter is saying they're faithful to their father. Look, they're not even, they're not even Jews. They're, not fa- they're faithful to their father, and you Jews are not faithful to your father. So the principle there wasn't that he was validating their uh, abstinence from alcohol, but he is t- praising their are using their faithfulness to their ancestor as an example in contrast to the Israelites' unfaithfulness to their heavenly father. Another example of abstinence in the Old Testament is Daniel and his friends. In Daniel 1, 8 to 16, they would not drink the wine of the Chaldeans. So that was a decision they made, but it was not something that was imposed by the Mosaic Law. Now, they did go along with certain dietary restrictions, but I think one of the reasons that they abstained from alcohol in Daniel 1, 8 through 16 is because alcohol has a tendency to lower your inhibitions, and they were going to stay away from anything that might cause them to lower their inhibitions and thus compromise with the uh, teaching and the brainwashing of the Chaldeans into their world system. So the Bible does authorize and, and talk about the value of abstinence in places. Also, the Bible clearly prohibits the abuse, misuse, and overuse of alcohol and drunkenness. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Let's correct that translation Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And in the Proverbs, you have the contrast between the wise believer who's operating on divine viewpoint and the fool who's operating on human viewpoint. So wine is a mocker. That is, it sears someone, it causes someone to... Uh, someone who has a seared conscience to violate their norms and standards. It distorts the thinking process. It distorts the conscience, and it destroys good judgment. When you drink, you can lose your, your inhibitions, and you can easily rationalize sin. Uh, here it's talking about wine is a mocker. This is someone who... Uh, who distorts their own thinking process and and will do things that otherwise they would not do. Strong drink being a brawler is from the Hebrew word hameh, which means someone who becomes violent when they partake of alcohol. And if that's true, and that's true for some people, then they need to stay away from alcohol. Furthermore, Proverbs talks about the fact that, that leaders should refrain from wine, especially if there's any 
possibility they may be called upon to make hard decisions. Proverbs 31, 4, and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So the principle of Proverbs 31 is that high government officials, those with a lot of responsibility, should be very cautious in their use of alcoholic beverage, and in fact it would be wise if they just would not. Also the priests of Israel. These leaders were uh, prohibited from drinking wine or, or beer. In the, Old, in the New Testament, when we come to the qualifications for, for um, leaders, for pastors and deacons, they are not prohibited from drinking uh, alcoholic beverage. In 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, they are simply not to be addicted to wine or pugnacious. That means getting into a fight over, over things. But gentle, uncondensious, free from the love of money. And 1 Timothy 3.8 Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. So in these two passages, we see that in the New Testament, pastors and deacons are not required to be uh, teetotalers. I remember a number of years ago hearing a, I think it was a Baptist preacher, using the uh, passages from Leviticus 10, 8 and 9, dealing with, a priest, that if you're a believer priest in the church age, you need to follow those same principles. You shouldn't partake of alcoholic beverages because the priests in the Old Testament. See, that's, the, that's an illegitimate transfer of meaning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That was just instruction to Levitical priests, and there's a difference in the New Testament. So let's look at some conclusion, concluding principles on the use of alcoholic beverages. First of all, the Bible gives no encouragement and no excuse for excessive drinking. See, what happens in, a, in any kind of legalistic situation, you, and you've all seen this, you see people who grow up in some circumstance, and you shouldn't drink, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and as soon as you realize grace, what do you start doing? You start doing what you shouldn't have been doing in excess, and because you're just like a baby, and that's usually true for most people. That's how babies respond. That's how young people respond. Those of you who have parents or you who were, all of us were kids at one time, when your parents started giving you a certain amount of freedom, we all abused it. Every now and then people make some comment to me that, uh, well, if you teach grace like that, somebody's going to sin. Well, I think so. That's part of growing up. People abuse freedom. And if you're a parent, you start giving your children responsibility and freedom, you can expect that they're going to abuse it. And you have to learn to teach them how to use their freedom and responsibility in a wise way. So just because the Bible says there's an illegitimate basis for using uh, wine or partaking of alcoholic beverages doesn't give you the right to go out and be a drunk or give you the the, uh, freedom to abuse alcohol. And I know of a number of people who will use it that way, but that is not biblical. And that leads to the second principle, which is that while drinking in moderation is permitted, 
there are many believers, many believers who cannot do so. Many believers simply can't handle it. For whatever reason, maybe that is a uh, uh, predilection of your sin nature. Maybe you have a genetic tendency in your sin nature. Maybe you have a physical uh, tendency that you've inherited in your family that makes it uh, uh, very addictive. I know I was talking with a, a medical doctor years ago about this, and there are some people whose metabolism is such that if they just drink drink one glass of wine, that is as physically addictive to them as, as heroin is to a, to a heroin addict, or to, to, as heroin would be to any of us. And it is a terrible thing for that individual. And so there's that category of addiction to alcohol. So sometimes you have to learn to say, others can do something, I just can't, or I won't, and for whatever reason. But that doesn't give you the right to then impose that standard on other people. Third, for the believer who cannot or will not drink in moderation, he needs to learn to avoid the use of alcohol uh, completely, except perhaps in medicine, and I think there's in some cases where he needs to avoid it even in medicine. Fourth principle, when in doubt, abstain. If for too much alcohol is, can be toxic and detrimental to the body and the soul, so if you're in doubt about a situation, you need to abstain. And then the fifth point is applying the law of love, which we get from doubtful things in 1 Corinthians uh, 8 through 10, that in uh, certain circumstances you need to just avoid wine. For example, as a pastor, there are times when I might have a glass of wine in privacy. I'm very careful about what I might do in public because you never know what the situation may be. I also know there are certain times when I am in the company of, of certain pastors and teachers and seminary professors that I know that I would not have a glass of beer if I wanted a glass of beer. I love to have a good beer with Mexican food, and I'll usually just have one beer. But there are many times when I'll go out and I'll be with a group of pastors, and I know that they have certain legalistic tendencies, and I'm just not going to create an issue. And see, I just use that as an example. hope that didn't shock any of you to find out that I drank a beer. Uh, I just use that as an example for all of you, that you need to learn that. You need to be sensitive to where other people are. And that there are some people who can handle it and some people who can't. And you may be in a circumstance, a situation with some believers who are a believer who may have a problem with alcohol. Maybe they're an alcoholic. Maybe that's a, a weakness for them. And you have to just say, well, I'm not going to make that an issue. And uh, there's other times you'll be with people who are uh, legalistic. Now, I'm a pastor. I have to handle that a little different than you do. If I weren't a pastor and I was with a legalistic pastor, I would probably order a beer. Now, why would I say that? And Not because I'm being mean or being obnoxious, but think about what Jesus did. Jesus constantly did things that were right in the correct interpretation of the Mosaic Law, right in the face of the Pharisees. It offended them. They took offense. But Jesus was not doing something that was either morally or ethically wrong or something that was that he was doing in, intentionally to offend them. He was showing them the right way, and they took offense. 
So every believer needs to, needs to figure out how they're going to handle these circumstances in different situations and make sure that their motivations are uh, correct and you don't want to just do something simply to, to generate antagonism and generate a fight, but you might want to do something just to make a principle that you have freedom and that this is something legitimate. I've been in situations where I've known I've been with pastors that, um, that I know would like to have a beer. Or a gla- one particular pastor I know, he would like to have a Crown 7. And I have been out at, to dinner with these men, and you know that they're just afraid to do it. And so I've ordered a beer. And it's amazing how relaxed everybody gets after that. Or I've ordered a scotch or something. It's amazing how everybody relaxes after that. But then I've been out with other pastors who will say, okay, I want to have something to drink at dinner. Let's go sit in the back corner where we're in the darkest part of the restaurant in case anybody in my church shows up. And I've seen that as well. So you, you just have to be sensitive to these things. And you don't want to necessarily be obnoxious and rub somebody's nose in the freedom that you have as a believer. But on the other hand, you need to learn how to, be, how to deal with situations in terms of grace. Now, before we wrap up, I want to make a couple of comments about alcohol in relationship to alcoholism. Most of you have been, are, are young enough to where you have been infected with the, the typical disease mentality of modern Western civilization, where everything is classified as a disease. Alcohol, excuse me, alcoholism is not a disease. Cancer is a disease. The flu is a disease. The common cold is a disease. Alcoholism is not a disease. A disease is something that is definitely generated under certain conditions that always exist, and there is, or well, there should be a cure for it, or there's some way to fix it. And it's mechanical. It's biological. Alcoholism is not that way. People have volition. Now, there may be a genetic tendency passed on through the sin nature towards a tendency towards dependence upon alcohol. But there are other people who get addicted to all kinds of things. Have you noticed in the last few years how addictions have multiplied? Now you've got sex addictions and you've got addictions to uh, reading. You've got addictions to work. You've got addictions to just about anything in life you can get addicted to. You can get addicted to the computer you can get addicted to uh, pleasure. You can get addicted to drugs. Of course, that's a physiological addiction. That You can demonstrate that. There's a physiological dependency that exists when you are on certain kinds of legal or illegal drugs. The body's dependent upon that. And the same kind of thing that can, can happen uh, with alcohol. But there's also just bad habits and, em- and emotional dependencies that are volitionally generated. And that's where this starts. Once you start saying it's a disease, then the flip side of that is the person isn't accountable or responsible for their behavior. And alcoholism is not a disease in that sense. Therefore, using the term disease is a misnomer. The Bible sees drunkenness as a sin. It is not a disease. And so we must not cave into that kind of terminology. Alcoholism isn't a disease that forces a person to drink, but it's a sin or a series of sins that flows out of a mental attitude that is seeking to solve life's problems 
apart from the ten problem-solving devices or ten stress busters that God's given us. And you can look at any detail of life and think that it's going to be your source of stability, happiness, or it's going to dull the pain of a miserable existence or disappointments or heartaches or whatever it may be. You can turn to chocolate. You can turn to sugar. You can turn to alcohol. You can turn to heroin. You can turn to success and business and work 14, 16 hours a day thinking that somehow success is going to make up for all the problems and disappointments and heartache that you've had in life. We can look to just about anything and blow it out of proportion, and the same thing is true of of alcohol. And the solution to a dependence upon alcohol, I think it's different for other drugs such as um, heroin or crack or things like that where there's a clear uh, physical dependency. You may have to do certain things, but ultimately the issue is learning to depend upon God and applying doctrine. And frequently I have made the comment that I would rather somebody stay a drunk, destroy their family, destroy their life, and die drunk in the gutter than to give them the hope that somehow they can make life work and find happiness and stability apart from total dependence upon God. Now, to a lot of people, that sounds cruel. Well, you shouldn't do that. They can have a wonderful life and their family and everything else. Yeah, but you've just taught them through some sort of methodology that they can find a measure of happiness without God. And I, you know, so they're dependent upon something else other than God to solve the problems of their life. So I would rather somebody die a drunk in the streets than solve their problem any other way other than um, total dependence upon God. One thing that people often turn to when they have this problem, have a problem with alcohol, is AA. And certainly uh, AA has helped some people, but I don't think their philosophy is a philosophy that, that is consistent with the Word of God. Furthermore, don't buy into their myth and their uh, advertising and their uh, promotions because less, fewer than 20% of those who go through AA have any measurable success. So these 12-step programs are all based on human viewpoint methodologies. And the only real, lasting, permanent solution to any problem in life is going to be the grace of God and the ten problem-solving devices that God's given us in the Scripture. All these other methodologies just teach people to solve their problems apart from God and not on exclusive dependence on the Word of God. So we have to recognize that there are problems with alcohol, problems that many people just can't get past. And it can be, in that case, it's a sin. But as I've said already, the use of alcohol is not necessarily sinful. It is not. It is what you do with it and how you use it or abuse it that is the issue. There is freedom in the Christian life, and this is just one of many areas where each individual has to decide for themselves what is best. And you may look across a congregation, and there may be somebody who's made the opposite decision from you, but that doesn't give you the right to judge them or malign them or to question their spirituality because they like to go out and and drink a beer every night or have a scotch every night, and you don't. And if you're not that way, if you enjoy going out and enjoy your scotch or bourbon or whatever, then 
You don't have the right to look across the aisle at somebody who's decided not to do that and think, well, they're just some legalistic holy roller. Because they're not. They just made that decision for their life. And that's the area of freedom for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next time we'll come back and I want to uh, get into the Noahic blessing and cursing of his three sons in a little more detail. And we'll set the stage and start getting into our study of the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to recognize that that beyond these issues of uh, use of alcohol or whatever it may be, the real issue is are we living a life in dependence upon you because that's the real solution to all of our problems. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, that we might have a mature biblical attitude towards this as all areas of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.